Let's open our Bibles now together to Romans chapter 12 as we are continuing our way through this epistle. We'll be, we'll be finishing up chapter 12 this morning. The last part of this book goes a lot faster than the first 11 chapters did. So we're handling a huge chunk of, of verses this morning, 17 through 21, all in one morning. It's astounding. But I want to I pick up again reading this whole um, paragraph. So in verse 14, Romans chapter 12, hear now the word of the Lord. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we do thank you for your living word. This supernatural, inerrant word of God that you have given to us. That, Lord, by your spirits working through your word, you have called our dead hearts, those bound in sin, to life and freedom. You have made us who were rebels in your kingdom to be your sons and your daughters by faith. You transform us daily into the likeness of Christ, our Savior. And I pray this morning that by your Spirit, working through your word, that you would accomplish all of your good purposes in us and among us, we pray. That Christ would be glorified, that you would lift our eyes to see him, cause our hearts to be humbled in worship, Cause us, Lord, to be encouraged in our faith and strengthened in our faithfulness. I pray for myself as I proclaim your word, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, John Calvin, that great French reformer, in his introductory remarks to the readers of his Institutes of the Christian Religion, wrote these words. Since I undertook the office of teacher in the church, I have no other purpose than to benefit the church by maintaining the pure doctrine of godliness. Yet, I think that there is no one who is assailed, bitten, and wounded by more false accusations than I. In other words, Calvin is saying, even though my entire goal and everything I'm doing is to glorify God, to, to preserve and proclaim the truth, the pure truth of his word, to benefit his people, I'm still being attacked nonstop from every side. And the truth is, we as Christians live in a hostile world. We, we live in a world like this. We, we're not in the position Calvin was in to receive the kind of attacks he was receiving, but this world is opposed to Jesus. And because it's opposed to Jesus, it's opposed to his followers. And add to that the apostate church, the false church, 
and the false Christians who populate these churches. Because they are part of this world, they hate God and his people as well, even in the name of God. And so how is it that we're to live in a world like this? How do we as Christians live our lives in a world that is hostile to us, that has hostile attacks coming from every side? That's what this passage is addressing. It's instruction for believers. It's instruction for for those who are in Christ, who have been justified by the mercies of God, who've been made alive by the life of Christ, who've been given a new heart and a new mind, who've been cleansed by the blood of Christ, who are, who are united to Christ and eternally hidden in Him, those who, who are indwelled by the Spirit of God, who empowers us and guides us in the way of truth, in the way of holiness and righteousness. It's, it's these people that Paul instructs, how do you live in a world that hates you? We're told elsewhere in Scripture that we are to be the light of the world. Jesus himself said this, Matthew, 16, Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Paul writes elsewhere in Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Jesus prayed to his Father on the behalf of his people in John chapter 17. I've given them your word. The world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. He told his disciples in John chapter 16, verse 33, in the world you'll have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. In his great commission to his disciples, in Matthew 28, we read these words from Jesus, I will be with you always, even until the end of the age. Now if that's true, if Jesus is the conqueror of the world, and he is, And if he is with us always to the end of the age by his Holy Spirit, and he is, then we will also overcome the world. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, speaking of the saints, says they overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. And Paul is talking to us about how it is that we'll overcome in a hostile world. He even uses that language in this passage this morning. How do we, as those who will surely overcome, as those who have victory in Christ already, live in a world that hates us, live in a world that is hostile to us? Because as we look at the world around us, it doesn't always feel, and maybe we can admit this, just a moment of honesty between us, it doesn't always feel like we're overcoming. It doesn't always feel like we have victory. How do we live in this world as those who have that? That's what verses 17 through 21 is talking to us about. Really five exhortations for how to live as Christians in an evil world. And to do, I, I want to, before we get into our verses this morning, take a look back at verse 14 that we discussed a couple weeks ago. 
Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. How do we live as Christians in a world that hates us? Well, the first thing we do is we bless those who persecute us. Paul says elsewhere in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. That's part of what it looks like to live in a fallen world. We will experience persecution because we are the children of God. Peter writes in 1 Peter 4, 4, that unbelievers are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery that they are living in. And Peter says, so they will malign you for it. That's the reality of the Christian in this world. This world, together with the apostate church and false Christians, heaps abuse on genuine believers, on true believers. We don't even have to be that outspoken. They, They will malign you for living differently than they do, for not joining them. And don't we see that in the world around us? It's not just that it's not just that we are, we're not supposed to speak out against certain sins. It's that if we don't participate in the celebration of certain sins, we are monsters and outsiders. That's exactly what Peter's talking about. But this unbelieving world, these false Christians that abuse true believers, they're the same ones who killed the prophets. They're the same ones who crucified Jesus. They're the same ones who murdered the apostles. The same ones who killed the early Christians in the early church, martyred the saints in the Protestant Reformation, and they continue to this day to persecute the true people of the Lord Jesus Christ. In many parts of the world, Christians are actively murdered for their faith. Right now, still. Even here in the West, true Christians who love God want to remain faithful to his word, are hated by the unbeliever and they're hated by the false Christian. All you have to do is join us in standing in front of Whole Women's Health in South Bend, Indiana. And you'll see that it's not just the unbelieving world that hates us for that, it's Christians who hate us. If you talk to to Brent or to, to Annie or any who are involved uh, a lot in that ministry of, of uh, coming against this great holocaust of abortion, you'll find out that some of the most painful criticism that they receive is from so-called Christians. It's just the reality of this world. If we will stand for righteousness and truth, this world will hate us. And as a part of this world, apostate Christians will hate us too. False Christians will hate us too. So what do we do? What do we do with that abuse? What do we do when we're persecuted? Well, we have a natural response to that, don't we? There's something in us that wants to rise up and lash out and fight back and defend ourselves. But what would Scripture tell us? What do we do when we're persecuted? Matthew 5, 12 says we ought to rejoice. That's what Jesus says. Jesus says we rejoice, and then he points to our heavenly reward. We remember our heavenly reward and it causes us to rejoice even in the midst of persecution. And in light of that, in light of fixing our eyes on that, on this eternal reality, Paul tells us bless and don't curse. 
in light of who you are, in light of what God has done for you, and in light of what's been promised and given to you, you can bless those who persecute you instead of cursing them. We remember the gospel. That's what we do. We preach the gospel to ourselves, that, that God saves sinners, and none of them are worse than we are. We're not better than anyone. We were rebels. We were treasonous enemies of God, but he set his love on us. He fixed his grace and mercy upon us, and he saved us. Paul said earlier in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. We remember the gospel. All I am is a reconciled enemy of God. All I am is a repenting sinner. And in light of that, I must bless my persecutors and not curse them. I can't remember who I, can't forget who I am and what God has done for me. So we pray for them instead of cursing them. We pray that they might also be saved from the wrath of God as we were, because they're no less deserving than we. But that's not, though, our natural human fleshly response to abuse, is it? We don't have to teach kids to retaliate. Right? You have two young children, and one of them whacks the other one. What are they going to do in response? Thank you so much. I want you to know I'm praying for you, big brother. And that's not how it goes. It doesn't come natural to us, but it's what we are commanded to do. And we are enabled to do it by the Holy Spirit of God who dwells within us. Jesus says this, Luke chapter 6, verse 27, Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. That's the first thing we do. We bless them instead of curse them by calling out on their behalf to the Lord, standing as an intermediary for them before the throne of grace that we have been given access to by God. Now look at verse 17. Second thing we do, we don't retaliate. He says, repay no one evil for evil. We give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. When the Christian is persecuted, we are to react to that persecution both negatively as well as positively. In verse 14, we just saw this. Negatively, do not curse. Positively, bless them. Now in verse 17, he says negatively, repay no one evil for evil, but positively give thought to what's honorable in the sight of all. The, the, the unbeliever, since they are dead in sin, since they are bound up in slavery to sin, is only able to repay evil for evil. They are only able to curse their enemies. They are not able to bless them. In fact, all the unbeliever is able to do is sin. But that's all we could do in that state. The unbeliever is in a state of what, what Augustine called non posse non bacari. You all understand that. It means he's not able not to sin. That's all he can do. He is not able not to sin. The unbeliever, because of his corrupt nature, because of the fall, is bound up in sin, dead in sin, such that it's all he can do. 
He is not capable of not sinning. That which does not arise from faith is sin, and there is no faith there. But those who are in Christ are a new creation, freed, as we've seen in the book of Romans, from from our bondage and death in sin, under sin's domission, and our condition is now posse non peccare, able not to sin. We are able to obey the commands of God. Christian, you are able to obey the commands of God, all of them. Even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of abuse, you are able to obey the commands of God. We are, we are able to respond to abuse and mistreatment without retaliation. You are able. And even to respond with graciousness, whether we feel like it or not. And odds are, we're not going to feel like it. But, but we're able to do so. We, we were created in Christ Jesus to do good works. We are made by him to be good trees who bear good fruit. We are empowered by his Holy Spirit to walk in love and mercy and faithfulness. And as we do that, by doing good, even those who do evil even to those who do evil to us, we are manifesting something to the world. We're displaying something to the world. We're displaying to the world the love of Christ, the power of the gospel. It makes us a peculiar people, a people who stand out. In Titus chapter 2, Paul tells young men, be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Then he says this in chapter 10. He tells slaves, don't steal from your master. He says, but show all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. In other words, so that their behavior would show how beautiful and powerful the gospel is. We conduct ourselves a certain way so that our lives will testify that the gospel's true. There's that old expression, preach the gospel at all times when necessary, use words. I give you permission, anytime you come across a card like that in a Christian bookstore or a poster, rip it off the wall, tear it up. The gospel is a message that must be proclaimed in words. Our lives do not preach the gospel, but our lives adorn the gospel. Our lives show how beautiful it is. Our lives show how true it is and how powerful it is. And that's what Paul says there in Titus. Live in such a way that your life may adorn the gospel, the, the doctrine of God our Savior. And so when Christians obey God, when Christians live graciously, even in the face of persecution, God is honored. God is glorified. And people can't help but see the glory and power of the gospel. So we don't retaliate. Third then, we're to live at peace with all men. Look at verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Christians are called to be peacemakers. Genuine Christians are peacemakers. Matthew chapter 5 verse 9, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called the sons of God. Those who have been given peace with God are now to be ambassadors of God's peace to this world. But that, that, that's our call, to represent God and to represent this peace to the world. 
calling the enemies of God to come to him by faith and to find peace with him through his son. The only place true peace can be found. The only place lasting peace can be found. We are God's ambassadors calling people to this peace that we have received from God. Romans chapter 5 verse 1, Paul had said, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And so as God's sons, we're to live peaceably with all men. But Paul gives us two limiting conditions here. Two limiting conditions to this peace with all men. He first says, if possible. Why did Paul write that? Well, because it's not always possible. That's why Paul wrote that. Jesus Christ said his truth would not always bring peace. Sometimes it would bring a sword. So Paul says, if possible, live at peace with all men. Martin Luther famously said, peace, if possible, but truth at all costs. What happened to the Apostle Paul, who said, if possible, live at peace with all men? What happened to him in every city he went and preached in? A riot happened where they tried to murder him. Everywhere he went, it did not bring him peace with all people. These words, if possible, mean sometimes it is just simply not possible to live at peace with all men. We, we must not sacrifice the purity and truth of the gospel to have some sort of false peace with people. We, we must earnestly contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And that does not create unity with everyone. Sometimes it creates division. It's a dividing line. I know that every time I preach, I might lose friends. I might have less peace with some people anytime I open my mouth to, to speak the truth in love. Because there is a dividing line of truth. There, there is a line we will not cross. There is a faith once for all delivered to the saints that we will hold fast to and we will proclaim and this world hates it. And the false believer hates it. Peace can't come at the expense of faithfulness to God. P peace without purity is not peace. But we need to make sure, what Paul's saying here is, we need to make sure the fault doesn't lie with us. If I'm not going to be able to live at peace with you, it better not have been on my end. The second limiting condition he gives is, so far as it depends on you. That's what he means. If we can't have peace with one another, if we cannot live peaceably with one another, it shouldn't be because of me. But the truth is, it doesn't always depend on you. You can be the sweetest, most loving, most humble, most godly person in the world, and someone will still hate you. But as much as it's within our power, we ought to live at peace. Christians should not be the cause of conflict. Christians should not be the cause of division. We should strive for peace with everyone, even our enemies. John MacArthur says this, that the peaceful relationship is a two-way street. Paul is simply telling us to make sure that our side of the street is open. We should make sure that we're not the ones holding out with a grudge or bitterness or a refusal to forgive. As much as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. We, we must shine as lights in this world. That's what we're called to. We must, we must love our enemies and pray for them. We must 
bless those who curse us. And the Holy Spirit who lives in us enables us to do that. Here's what that means. If we're commanded to it and the Holy Spirit who lives in us empowers us to do it, here's what it means. Christian, you can do this. You can live like this. You can be this person. And more than that, you must do this. You are not exempt from this, not in one single relationship in your life. There is not one relationship in your life where you are exempt from these commands. We must do this. We must live this way. And when we don't live up to it, and there's not a one of us who always lives up to it, then we openly and freely repent before the Lord and confess our sins to the ones who have witnessed us not adorning the gospel with our lives. Fourth, then he says, don't take revenge. Verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Now he's talking here about the Christian who has suffered genuine injustice. He, he's not talking about those, those perceived slights that we have. I'm pretty sure I detected a microaggression there in the way you looked at me. No, no, no. Genuine injustice has been done to you, and he says, vengeance doesn't belong to you. This ruins like every good Western that's ever been made. I want to see Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday ride down the Clanton gang and no hugs. Vengeance doesn't belong to us. We don't have the God-given authority to punish criminals. We, we don't have that personally. We must, Paul says, leave that to God. Now we're going to see next week, this doesn't prevent the believer from utilizing the law and the courtroom for justice. Because there are those who are given authority by God to execute justice. It's just not us. We, we don't take personal revenge. Instead, Paul says, we leave it to the wrath of God. We, we don't retaliate. We entrust ourselves to God who judges justly. We commit all things to the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that God will judge perfectly and he will do it in the perfect timing. At the right time, in the right way, God will judge. Both the unbelievers in the world and those of the apostate false church, and we're instructed, leave that judging up to him. Leave that judgment to him. Leave that justice up to him. God, God is love, yes, but he's also holy. In fact, the holiness of God is the only attribute of God listed in Scripture to the superlative third degree. God is holy, holy, holy. You want to know the most true thing you can say about God? God is holy. Many Christians don't want to talk about the wrath of God, especially the apostate, posing, progressive, false church. Oh, we don't believe in a God of wrath. Scripture speaks more of the wrath of God than it does the love of God, for the record. But Paul's already told us in Romans chapter 1 that the wrath of God is being stored up 
Literally, it's being stockpiled. Sin upon sin upon sin, the wrath of God is being stockpiled in order to be poured out. And God could judge man immediately. He could just give us death and hell instantly the moment that we sin, and that would be just. That would be righteous. Paul told us in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that God is forbearing. In other words, he's holding back. He's delaying judgment. In chapter 9, verse 22, God in his grace, Paul tells us, has patiently endured vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. God is patient. But that grace will end one day. The, The wrath of God will be poured out on the wicked. Every mouth will be stopped on that day. There will be no excuses. There will be no defenses. There will be no alibis. There won't be a single prayer. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. The word repay is a striking word. It means to personally and accurately pay back what's due. See, the wrath of God, hell, it's a paycheck. Salvation is grace. Wrath is what's earned and what's deserved. And God will pay it back accurately. God's vengeance is not a personal vendetta. It is a judicial verdict. It's what's due. It's what's right. It's what's just. And he will carefully and accurately judge the world. Every single sin, big or small, will be punished either in the Lord Jesus Christ as our substitute or in us as the guilty sinner. But none will be brushed under the rug. All will be dealt with. All will be judged. And in the Greek here, there's an emphasis on God's action. It's a guarantee. God will most certainly repay in wrath and vengeance. God is a moral God, a righteous God, a holy and just God, and that means He must repay every sin. Much of the unbelieving world doesn't accept that. They don't like that. They say that would make God a monster. How could He possibly judge? How could He possibly have wrath? How could He possibly condemn? And the truth is, God would be thoroughly unrighteous if He didn't. If he excused sin. We know that even on our limited human understanding. If someone murders your family member and you stand in the courtroom with the guilty person and everyone knows they did it and the judge says, you know what? I'm feeling extra loving today. You just get, you're guilty, but you just get to go home. Well, we would be rightly outraged. That's not justice. That's wickedness. And God is just. God is righteous. God has never once judged someone who didn't have it coming, who didn't deserve it, who, who hadn't worked hard for it. But we're not the ones to carry that judgment out. That is not our part. Christ is the one who defends his church. Christ is the one who conquers and judges his enemies, not us. John Piper speaks of the wrath of God that's poured out on on sinners. He says four things about it. First, it's eternal. 
Matthew 25, Jesus says this. There are many places in Scripture that speak of the eternal nature of this wrath, of this judgment of hell. Matthew 25, Jesus says this. The wicked go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So the nature of these two things is the same. The nature of eternal punishment is the same as the nature of eternal life, which is to say it's forever. Second, it's of indescribable pain when Scripture speaks of the wrath of God poured out eternally on the unrighteous. Jesus spoke of hell more than anyone else in Scripture. He calls it in Matthew 13 a fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 14, we read, Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, the second death. Scripture consistently uses the imagery of, of the most intense, unimaginable physical and mental anguish and suffering. Third, it's just. Romans chapter 2, verse 5, Paul wrote, Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God's judgment, God's wrath, it's never an overreaction. It's always just. It's always right. Fourth, though, it's escapable. The wrath of God is escapable. The punishment of God is escapable. Hell is escapable. How do we escape hell? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in the one in whom God punished all the sins of all who would repent and believe in Him. In chapter 10 of Romans, verse 9, Paul said, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. If you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. He doesn't mean just superficially saying Jesus is Lord. I went to a funeral once where the pompous fool who was up preaching at the funeral he, he had everyone in the audience repeat after me, Jesus is Lord. And he said, there it is. You're all going to heaven. That's most decidedly not what's being said here. This is not some sort of magical incantation that we, we say it and we get the, the reward. No, it means you're his willing slave. He's your Lord. He is your master. You bow your knee. You live in obedience to Him. And if you do that, friend, you will escape the wrath of God. Fifth then, our responsibility to those who persecute us. Our, our, our part is not judgment. Our part is not retaliation and the pouring out of wrath. What is ours? Verse 20, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. So we're not to take revenge because God will judge, but what is our part? We're to love our enemies. And we're to do so practically by meeting their needs. Paul's quoting Proverbs 25 here. Proverbs 25, verses 21 and 22. If your enemy's hungry, give him bread to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Bless your enemies. Pray for your enemies. 
feed your enemies. This is what we've been told in this passage. Do unto others what you would have them do unto you, Jesus told us. That's to be our response as God's gracious ambassadors. And that's not terribly hard to understand. It's hard to do, but it's not hard to understand. But then we get to this phrase at the end of verse 20 that is also in Proverbs 25, where by doing so you'll heap burning coals on his head. That took quite a turn, didn't it? A quick turn. Do, do, respond in grace. If he's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, do that. Also, set his head on fire. That would be the way. So We're supposed to be kind and gracious to our enemies as a sort of passive-aggressive way of sticking it to them. Is that the motivation? Do these kind things for them. Just know, though, you're really doing harm to them. And you can feel good about that. We, we act nice, but we're really trying to hurt them. Obviously, that's not what's being said. There must be something else that's being said. God, God does not motivate us to righteousness by appealing to our basest instincts. We are to do good to our enemies so that they may see our kindness and be convicted of their sin and repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. The Apostle Peter speaks of this kind of conviction, and, or, or well, Acts chapter 2 speaks of this in the preaching of the Apostle Peter. On the day of Pentecost, Peter proclaims the gospel message to the crowds. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified by the, sin, the hands of sinful men. And the text says in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, the people were cut to the heart literally pierced through, causing severe pain. It's a similar imagery that's going on here. There, there is a painful intensity to conviction of sin that is for our good. It's a heaping of coals on, on his head for the purpose of salvation. When the Holy Spirit convicts us, he wounds us in order to heal us. That, that's the kindness of God. The kindness of God that Romans chapter 2 verse 4 said leads us to repentance. But, but if one refuses to repent, when he experiences the kindness of God, when the goodness and truth and beauty of the gospel is displayed in one of God's gracious ambassadors responding with overwhelming kindness and mercy, in the face of persecution, when one rejects the kindness of God, then his punishment will be all the more severe when the Lord takes vengeance on him. In this case, the kindness of God's people toward him will be a heaping of coals on his head in a non-saving manner. None of us are unchanged. You, you, you will not leave this room unchanged for having been here and heard the gospel proclaimed. You will not leave this room unchanged for having stood in the midst of God's people as they worshipped him together corporately. You will either be drawn towards your Savior in humble submission or your heart will be further hardened and your judgment increased. That's the reality, and that's what Paul's pointing us to here. But friends, that judgment belongs to the Lord alone. 
not to us. Our desire, our prayer is that all men, even our enemies, would see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. That's to be our disposition towards all people. That our actions would cause them to feel the inward burning of conviction of their sin that would lead them to repentance and to salvation and to joy. That's what Paul means in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless them and do not curse them. We are not free to render final judgment on anyone and say they're done, they're too far. Finally then, verse 21. What are we to do as Christians in a world that hates us? We're to overcome evil with good. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This word overcome, it's a Greek word that's transliterated as Nike. It, it just means to, to, carry off, to be carried off in victory, to, to carry something off in victory. And that's what we are called to friends, Christians, victory. We are called to victory. Jesus Christ is the victor. He has overcome the world. He has overcome the devil. He has overcome death itself. And since we are united to him, since we are in him, his life is our life. His power is our power. His victory is our victory. And so we will overcome the world and the flesh, and the devil. We will not be overcome by them because Jesus already overcame them. It's not just that we're overcomers. We are, to use Paul's language in Romans chapter 8, super overcomers. He, he writes this in Romans chapter 8, verse 31. If God's for us, who can be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? It says in verse 37, No, in all these things we're more than conquerors. That's the word. Hooper Nikeo. Super overcomers. Not just overcoming, over the top overcoming. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's why we're able to overcome evil with good. That's how we live in this world. As overcomers. Who are shining lights in this world. We live in this world as gracious ambassadors of God's kingdom to show the way of salvation to the world by our holy lives, one, and by our faithful proclamation of the gospel, on the other hand. The wrath of God is sure. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. He will surely repay every sinner, and his judgment will be eternal. It will be dreadful. It will be just. God will be glorified in it. And as we sit here today, this judgment is escapable. For all who repent. 
for all who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But friend, tomorrow is not promised to us. It's not always escapable. Once it falls on you, as Paul shows us in the early chapters of Romans, it falls hard. There's no escaping. It will be too late. Grace will have run out. So today is the day of salvation. Right now, today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow. One of my favorite preachers says, tomorrow is the devil's day. Today is the day. So hear the command of God. He commands all people everywhere to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he calls on us to demonstrate our repentance with our obedience. May we be faithful ambassadors of this gracious King to a world for whom wrath is being stored up that they may escape the wrath of God as we have. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this great salvation. We thank you for loving us, for choosing us, for saving us. Lord, when we were treasonous rebels, shaking our fist in your faith, as Paul said in Romans, at war with you, hating you, Lord, you saw fit to save us, to send your son, to live sinlessly where we had rebelled, to fulfill the law where we had transgressed, to go to that cursed cross bearing our guilt, our condemnation, the wrath that was earned by us poured out on him, that he paid in full our penalty. Lord, we rejoice in your grace and in your kindness to us. We pray, Lord, that you would make us faithful ambassadors in this world that hates us, that we would not hate in return. In this world that maligns and attacks us, that we would not attack and resent in return, but that we would, we would be faithful, Lord, with our lives and with our actions and with our words to proclaim the gospel and show forth its power and goodness and beauty. We know, Lord, that this is not within our flesh to do, and so we pray by your Spirit that you would empower us to this end. By your Spirit, you would cause our eyes to be lifted to Christ, that we would be humbled in worship and submission, and in light of the glory of Christ, that we would live faithful lives that represent him well. For your glory, we pray this. For the joy of all of your people, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.